the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at the challenges facing aviation. My guests are Willie Walsh, the Irishman who heads IATA, a Geneva-based body that represents airlines from around the world. And Mary McKenna, a leading Irish travel operator who organises trips to North America and cruises for her customers. Aviation is having a good year, with a strong rebound in demand post the pandemic. But there are challenges, including high fuel costs, delays in the production of new aircraft, air traffic control disruptions in France, and the need to hit net zero by 2050. Willie Walsh will explain why many airlines are still struggling financially in spite of this strong rebound this year why airfares are likely to continue rising in the near term, and how there needs to be a big push to develop sustainable aviation fuels if the industry is to meet its net zero target by 2050. He also explains why hitting net zero doesn't necessarily mean we will all have to reduce the amount of times we fly each year. Mary McKenna recounts the devastating impact of COVID restrictions on her business in 2020 and 2021 and how demand has rebounded to the extent that leisure customers are now willing to splash out on business class seats on long-haul flights. She also has some tips on how to get the best fares. They will also both give me their views on how Dublin Airport should expand in the years ahead. But I began by asking Willie Walsh about the wildfires in Greece and other parts of the Mediterranean, which have devastated the local areas and forced tourists out of their resorts. How are airlines responding to this awful situation and what can passengers expect from them as they seek to rearrange their travel plans? Yeah, well, it's a very difficult situation. Obviously, the scenes are um, tragic for uh, the places that are suffering from these uh, wildfires. Uh, I think from an airline point of view, they will continue to try and keep operations as normal as possible because uh, you've got to remember there will be people on uh, these islands in these locations who will want to return home. Uh, so most of the airlines that I've seen are offering quite a bit of flexibility to people who have not yet traveled out, uh, but are doing their best to ensure that they're providing capacity to repatriate people, including people who may have wanted to terminate their holidays earlier than scheduled and uh, return home because of the uh, conditions there. So a very difficult situation for airlines. But uh, I think uh, from what I've seen, uh, all of the airlines operating there are doing the, the best they can in the circumstances. Mary McKenna, I know that a lot of your businesses focus towards uh, North America, but you're also doing cruises as well, aren't you, on other, other types of travel. So is this impacting any of your customers? No, it's not. No, I mean, there are not that many Irish customers. I think there's about 600 uh, Irish customers because there's only two Ryanair flights and two TUI uh, charter flights uh, going into Rhodes. Um, so um, that would not be a huge amount of passenger numbers. Um, um, but I, I do get all the communication from the ITAA about what's happening. So uh, to my knowledge, not one tourist, uh, you know, there hasn't been any casualties. So I think it's more the domestic market has been hit really uh, bad there. Like if you think of the hotels all have air conditioning units, homes don't have air conditioning units. So um so what I've heard and seen through communications, uh, the airlines are doing a good job. The tour operators are doing a good job. The airlines have to continue going in there because they have to get people back home. Um, so the most important thing is you have very nervous travellers and it's really good the airlines and the tour operators are offering flexible uh, changes and, and working with them and helping them. And that's the most important thing, uh, that they feel safe and they can get home uh, and that people know they can get home. Um, so it doesn't affect me. Uh, I'm watching it very carefully because all these type of things are happening throughout the world as, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it reminds me a bit of Ash Cloud as well, where it affects the travel industry and the airline business. Yeah, Willie Walsh, there's been a really strong rebound, hasn't there, from the pandemic, probably stronger than you could have imagined a couple of years ago. This doesn't help, obviously, but hopefully it's only a blip. Just give us a sense of where the aviation industry is at now compared to, let's say, 2019, the last full year before the pandemic. Yeah, it's recovered uh, strongly, uh, particularly in domestic markets. And if I go back to 2019, domestic markets globally accounted for about 36 percent of 
of all travel. And in fact, it's now above where it was in 2019. It's at about 105% of where it was in 2019. Uh, International markets are still recovering. And if we look at the first half of this year, up to the end of June, it's still about 12% down on where we were in 2019. Now, most of that comes in Asia, where, uh, you know, the uh, regions there have only been recently reopened. And in fact, there are still some restrictions in place. I'm traveling to uh, China this weekend, uh, still a requirement to do some testing before I go there. Not not as uh, strict as it was uh, during the uh, period of the pandemic, but we're seeing traffic in Asia now recover strongly, but uh, still a bit to go on the international market. But generally, it's recovered quite strongly. And within Europe, we're pretty much back to where we were uh, in 2019, uh, very strong recovery in domestic markets, which in Europe only accounts for about 13% of uh, travel. But we've seen Spanish markets uh, and Italian domestic markets recover strongly. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's good to see it. Uh, the uh, rebound, I think, as you said, was uh, a little bit faster than we had expected. It certainly started a little bit earlier. And uh, the positive from a you know a global airline point of view is we weren't expecting China to reopen until the second half of this year, until around now. And in fact, it surprised us all by reopening in January. Yeah, and airfares have gone up as well, haven't they? Uh, I saw some data from Sirium um, suggesting that airfares are up 32% since 2019. Is that a figure you recognise? Would you go along with that? No, I think you've got to be careful because the, the data that people will look at will not be a complete data set. So, Uh, We have much more data available to us uh, in uh, IATA. Now, it does depend on where you're booking, uh, because in some areas, demand has been exceptionally strong. uh, And you've got to factor in a couple of things. First and foremost, uh, capacity has not come back fully to where it was in 2019. So there are fewer seats available. Uh, Seat factors generally are very high. Uh, In Europe, in uh, June uh, seat factors were at about 88, 89%. That's uh, very high for uh, this time of the year. Uh, and costs are significantly up. And I think people forget that. In fact, some research we did looking at over uh, 7 billion fares uh, showed that when you factor in inflation, uh, it's pretty much um, flat versus where it was in 2019. Uh, and particularly when you take into account uh, fuel costs, which for airlines uh, represent a very significant, the biggest part of their uh, cost base. And while uh, the uh, crude prices have uh, declined from where they were at the highs, jet fuel prices are still very high. So uh, when you put all of this into the mix, yes, fares are higher, uh, um, you know, higher for a number of factors, principally because costs are significantly higher. And I think everybody's aware of the general inflationary effects that people are experiencing. Mary McKenna, what's been your experience in terms of taking people to North America? You're one of the biggest operators uh, on that route from Ireland. Uh, Compare now to 2019. Yeah, well, you know, I agree with uh, Willie uh, on what he said. And and just in terms of fuel costs, they're about 30% of the carrier's uh, costs. So it's quite high. Inflation has seriously affected us, uh, everybody in travel. Um, and what we're seeing actually is uh, if you leave it to book late, you're finding it very hard to get seats. Um, it's it's not there and it is much more expensive. We're seeing about, uh, about 30 to 40% increase. But then again, it really depends. If you're looking at a direct route of Aer Lingus to Orlando, they have a monopoly on a direct flight from Dublin. So you're going to pay the most expensive and you're probably going to go on an older um, Qatar uh, flight. So um, there, there are good options to look at as well. There are competitive prices out there. So while it's lovely to go direct and you have all the benefits of um, uh, immigration, if it's a family traveling, they should definitely look at going through New York or, or on BA or Virgin through London. So just to look at the options, you are going to pay a higher price for a direct flight. And I think it's what's really important from my experience, and I don't know if Witty agrees with this, but Airfares in Ireland come out 11 months uh, before the flight goes. So I think it's really important to book early. Don't leave it last minute because you're not going to get a good deal. And from our, um, from what we're seeing is uh, anybody who's booking last minute is, is going to pay maybe twice or three times the price of an airfare. 
and you can't get business wow. class. Business class is completely and utterly full. Um, so that's the big shift I've seen is anybody looking for business class, it is impossible to get a business class seat. And in terms of those business class seats, Mary, are they corporates flying in those seats or is it a mix of corporates and uh, and well-off individuals? Well, I think what's happened, you've got to remember the pent-up demand from COVID. So in our business, people are looking at the States maybe as a once-in-a-lifetime holiday. Um, and during COVID, they were sa- saving about 400 uh, euros per month on savings, which was like four times higher than the UK So they're kind of looking at, we missed this holiday, so now we're going to do it really, really well, create that memory. So we are seeing a lot of the leisure market booking business class tickets. Um, And and there is a certain amount of the corporate market that has come back. But I think the leisure market in that high end has definitely, they've come back and they said, we're going to treat ourselves. Whether that continues into the future, I don't know. But right now we are seeing people are treating themselves either either to five-star uh, upgrades in rooms or business class. Um, and there's a lot of benefits for a customer if they're traveling in business class. It includes three bags, uh, you know, and, and sometimes the difference isn't that huge, but the demand uh, is definitely there for business class and we're finding it very hard to get business class seats. Now, we've we've seen that globally, Kieran, uh, premium travel. We don't look at the reason for travel in IATA, but we look at the uh, the cabin of travel and premium travel has recovered faster than economy travel. And without question, it's not business travel where there's still evidence that that's uh, lagging behind in terms of the recovery. So what we see more and more is uh, what we call premium economy uh, or, or sorry, premium leisure, uh, where people are paying to get that premium experience uh, as part of a, an overall uh, holiday experience that they got. But it's it's very clear that the trend that Mary talked about in uh, in Ireland uh, we're seeing right across uh, the world. And Willie, is that a short term phenomenon? Do you think? I don't think so. It's interesting um, that you know when I was, if I think back to my BA days and the uh, the uh, financial crisis uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, uh, we witnessed similar um, experience then with premium travel remaining quite strong and economy travel uh, under more pressure. So I, I think this is something that we have seen before. Um, we've seen it consistently now for the last uh, two, two and a half years during the, the period of the pandemic and the recovery that uh, demand for premium travel um, has outstripped the demand for economy travel. And as I said, it's uh, consistent right across uh, the world. Mary, can you give us a flavour for the typical type of airfare that somebody's going to face going direct from Dublin, let's say, to New York or even to the West Coast of America? Yeah, well, I can give you an idea. It can vary. So, for example, we would have net fares with Aer Lingus to Miami of 1,800. However, you could double that if you don't book 11 months out. So um, you're talking probably 2,000 up to 4,000 <laughs> last minute, maybe 6,000. Um, we did a whole trip there to um, Singapore um, and those flights varied. So if you leave it uh, to four, eight weeks before, you're going to pay anything from eight, nine thousand euros where uh, you could maybe get a three, four thousand. And it really, I can't give an answer on an exact fare and Willie will back me on this because they don't exist unless you have net fares. But then again, once they sell out, you don't have them. So you're going into a system where it's yield control and, and, and they really do a very good job. Demand, the fare goes right up. Um, but as a, again, as I said, the tip is book it early and you, you'll get the best deal. You leave it till late, you will pay through your nose for it. I think the, the one thing you've got to understand, Kieran, you know, people uh, associate this then with high levels of profitability. You know, we're forecasting profits at an industry level this year, uh, representing a margin of about 1.2%. Uh, so, uh, you know, you've got to remember uh, that when there are uh, periods of high demand, you will see high fares because the supply uh, certainly will probably not match the demand that's out there. And that's typical in the industry during months like June, July, August in the, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, but the industry financially is still uh, struggling to recover. And I think it'll be a long time before we get back to uh, you know, recover the damage that was done to the industry during the period of the pandemic. Well, I was going to ask you, Willie, given the prices that Mary was quoting there, whether there might be an element of price gouging going on among the airlines and um, hotels 
in Ireland. I don't know if you're uh, how tuned in you are to the local scene here, but hotels in Ireland have been accused of uh, price gouging post the pandemic uh, with some of the prices that they're charging, particularly around events like concerts or uh, big football or rugby matches, etc. Is there any of that going on in the aviation industry? No, I, I don't believe so. You know, the, as I said, if you look at the profitability of the airline industry, and yes, there are some very profitable out, airlines out there, but in terms of margins, and you compare it to other industries, margins are exceptionally low. And as I said, uh, during the, the the best 10 years of this industry, period between 2010 and 2019, where we had 10 consecutive years of profitability at an industry level, the average margin for the industry at an operating level was 5.4%. Uh, and this year, as I said, we're, we're forecasting net margins about 1.2%. Uh, so, you know, there have been a, a lot of months where airlines have lost huge sums of money. Uh, it's no different to what we've seen historically. Prices during the peak period in the Northern Hemisphere tend to be more expensive. I actually spent the, the weekend in Dublin with uh, five of my colleagues uh, from uh, Geneva. Um, yeah, I have to say uh, the hotel prices, yeah, they were high, not as high as I've experienced in, in other parts of the world. Uh uh, the, the guys, three of them had never been to Dublin before. They thought the service was excellent. So, you know, we, we will always have complaints uh, during busy periods about uh, pricing. There's there's no difference this time around to what we would have seen previously, other than, you know, we've now got a factory in inflation, which uh, is much higher than people had been used to. And I, th I think that's the bit that people forget. You know, when you look at uh, the inflation that we've witnessed between 2019 and now, it, it is significantly higher than most people would have been used to. What would you expect in terms of airfares, Willie, uh, over the next three to five years? Where would you expect them to go? What kind of inflation are we looking at? Well, it's impossible to say, Kieran, because uh, as, as Mary has uh, you know, confirmed, if you look at a, an airline's cost base, the two biggest elements of the cost are fuel and uh, employment costs. And we've seen significant inflation on both of those. Uh, you know, in terms of fuel costs, we estimate that uh, it will represent about 32, 33% of the uh, the cost base this year. When you add uh, labor costs into that, it's, it's over 50% of uh, the cost base. And when your two biggest cost elements have suffered from uh, significant inflation, that has to be reflected in, in ticket prices. There's just no you know, no way of avoiding that. If if the airline's cost base go up, uh, you know, they will have to reflect that higher cost base in ticket prices. So while we see uh, continuing high jet fuel prices, uh, you know, you can expect uh, pricing to remain um, similar to what we've seen this year. Uh, you know, bearing in mind that earlier in the year, you know, there were a lot uh, of fares available uh, at much lower prices than now, because as Mary said, uh, you know, uh, people can book early and typically will get access to much cheaper fares than if they leave it to the, the last minute. It doesn't always follow uh, that pattern, but, you know, 90% of the time that is the pattern that you'll see. Uh, some other factors uh, playing into this, Willie. Uh, during the pandemic, aircraft manufacturing was disrupted. Supply chains were disrupted. Still a bit of catch-up going on there. We can see that with, definitely with Boeing. And we have the war in Ukraine, obviously, and a lot of aircraft stranded in Russia and uh, a chunk of continental European airspace out of action, effectively. Um, we've had air traffic rolling, air traffic control disruption in France now for a very long time, haven't we? Yeah, uh, you know, it just shows that, um, you know, relative to what we went through during the pandemic, these are sort of business as usual challenges, but they're huge challenges. Uh, you know, it, it's terrible what we see in France with uh, ongoing air traffic control uh, strikes. Um, and, you know, they, these are not against... Uh, the uh, em employer in terms of uh, ATC, these are, you know, political strikes. And that's the frustrating part about it, because I don't think we're going to see a solution to these political strikes. And we see them every year. Uh, you know, it's almost become part of their job now in, in France for the air traffic controllers to go on strike, particularly during the uh, peak period. Um, the issues in Ukraine have had a direct impact on the price of oil. Uh, you know, I think everybody recognizes that. In terms of airspace, it has created some bottlenecks, which has led to some additional delays. Um, but generally, uh, I think the industry has, uh, you know, coped with that. The, the supply chain issues play into the uh, supply of uh, aircraft uh, availability and therefore seats. And that's why, you know, we are seeing, as I said, strong demand, but capacity not coming back as quickly because 
uh, aircraft have not been delivered uh, on schedule. And I think airlines have become much more cautious now uh, about planning the uh, introduction of new aircraft into their fleet because of the delays. And it's not just by Boeing. We've seen it with Airbus as well. So a, a lot of challenges for the industry. Uh, but despite all of that, you know, we're in a much better place this year than we were uh, last year or, or two years ago. Mary, let's talk about the impact on your business uh, from the pandemic. How low did it go and how has the business uh, rebounded since then? You know, it's it's so funny listening to Willie there as well. Um, I mean, this is a real fun industry to be in, but it's a tough industry to be in. Um, we're trying to attract uh, staff back into our industry. And if, if I can paint a picture of what COVID was like um, and, and prior to COVID going through September the 11th, Ash Cloud, um, you know, we were in an industry where everybody had to keep working for two years. Unlike any other industry, we had to keep working, taking care of our customers, um, have our staff deal with customers who were really unhappy, um, you know, rebook them, rebook them, rebook them. Um, and it's a really tough industry for uh, staff. And, and I think of Dublin Airport and I think of the airlines and I think of the travel industry. Um, you know, that was a tough time for them and we had no income coming in. So we're still trying to attract people back into our industry. And if you look at Dublin Airport, you know, can you imagine the uh, tough time that staff got at Dublin Airport? You know, there's only so much people can take. So we're in an industry where it's, you know, people are going on their holidays. They're, they're you know, very anxious going on holidays. And if th- something goes wrong, they take it out on whoever's on the other end of the phone. Um, so I think we've had a really tough time, um, but we've made it. The airlines are back. We, they're our partners. The airports are partners. Travel agents did a very good job, in my opinion. I think, you know, as, as a travel company, um, we communicated with our customers the whole time. Um, uh, you know, when I look at my own business, I remember the day I closed my office in Dublin, two offices in Dublin, Cork, the States, talking to my team, saying, you know, uh, it'll be okay. We'll keep communicating. We'll do the right thing. We'll take care of our customers. And going home, not knowing whether I got COVID or was having a nervous breakdown, because I really didn't know what was ahead. And, uh, you know, the only thing I can say about uh, business is the past helped me get through a really difficult time. Um, so I ran a business as a business, not a lifestyle. I knew that you need cash um, and you need to make sure you get through a really tough time. I didn't realize it was going to be two years. But again, we were in a financially really good place that we could get through stuff, do the right things, take care of our team and most importantly, take care of our customers. So I don't want to go through it again. Um, but, uh, you know, we've come out uh, very strong, uh, have a good team, still trying to get a couple of people back into our industry. But um, I, I can honestly tell you, um, Kieran, this is a tough industry to be in because you don't know what's around the corner all the time. And the only thing I can say is while I look like I have a great job, uh, I can be punched from any side, any time, any place. And that's what travel is like. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Willie, you're now with an industry group, IATA, which represents uh, airlines around the world, but you were Chief Executive uh, formerly of Aer Lingus and then British Airways and then the head of IEG, which includes British Airways and Aer Lingus among its airline groups. Um, I guess you don't miss those days on the front line with with the airlines uh, dealing with that kind of crisis. Yeah, they, they are tough, you know, um, uh, but this is an industry that you get into and you and you love it. And as Barry said, uh, you know, we, we, we've seen a lot of problems. We've seen a lot of challenges uh, I don't regret a single moment of my time in the airlines there. You know, I, I, I look at the challenges my friends and colleagues and former colleagues are are facing today. And, uh, you know, I, I wish them well. Uh, it's a lot easier for me in my current role. I have to say there's very little stress in this role compared to running an airline or running an, an airline group. But it's a fantastic industry. And, you know, while we did lose a lot of good people during the pandemic who decided to leave the industry, uh, I've no doubt that people will come back and will see this as an attractive industry again in the future. 
So tell us a little bit about IATA and your day job, Willie. What exactly does it involve? And uh, you're based in Geneva, isn't that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, living and working in uh, Geneva, still traveling a little bit, uh, not getting back to Dublin as often as I would like, but uh, get back there every now and then. Uh, so we represent uh, over 300 airlines in terms of activity. It's about 85% of all commercial uh, aviation. Um, and we do a lot of things. One of the sort of traditional functions that people would associate with uh, IATA is we operate what we call the settlement system. So uh, about 350 billion US dollars are processed through IATA. And these are, uh, as Mary would well know, you know, you buy a ticket with an agent, uh, the money goes to the agent, uh, it has to get to the airline, and sometimes there's several airlines, uh, and uh, a lot of that flows through IATA. And then we you know, represent the industry in front of uh, governments and other regulatory bodies. Uh, so it's a very different job to what I would have been used to at an airline. It keeps me close to the industry. Uh, it allows me to uh, still stand up and defend the industry, as I've always enjoyed doing. Um, but as I said, uh, you know, certainly... Uh, much less press pressure in 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 this role than in uh, my former roles as uh, CEO of an airline. Willie, what's the biggest challenge facing facing the global aviation industry at the minute? Well, without question, it's the environmental challenge. Uh, you know, I think it's a challenge that everybody faces. Uh, you know, and we recognise that as an industry, we've got to play our part. Uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the contribution that aviation makes in terms of uh, climate change, in terms of Man-made CO2, we we uh, contribute just over 2%, uh, slightly less today, but if you sort of average it uh, over the, the uh, sort of normal period, it's about 22 2.3%. Uh, and while that's uh, small, we recognize that our percentage will increase as other industries decarbonize. And then we do have uh, what we call some non-CO2 uh, effects on, on climate change, which are Less uh, um, scientifically understood at the moment, although a lot of research going in there, but generally accepted that these non-CO2 impacts are have a warming effect as well. So, you know, the lot that we need to do, uh, we have committed as an industry to getting to net uh, zero in 2015, uh, aligning with the Paris Agreement and indeed with uh, many countries uh, around the world and governments around the world. Uh, we'll principally achieve that through uh, a switch to what we call sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, that, in the, the short to medium term, is the uh, only big solution that we have. I think longer term technology will provide uh, additional uh, opportunities for the industry. But sustainable aviation fuel represents the, the best uh, option for us. And, and it is a clear and credible pathway for the industry to achieve net zero in 2050. So that's a switch away from fossil fuels, but it's going to be an expensive switch, uh, Willie, isn't it? How much will it cost and who's going to pay for it? Yeah, well, um, it is expensive today if you can get it and there's very little volumes available. It's about two and a half times the price of uh, traditional jet uh, kerosene. So uh, again, going back to what I said, if uh, fuel represents you know over 30%, 32% of the industry's cost base, you can see that this is going to have a big impact on uh, the airline cost base. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, anything that impacts on the cost base is going to impact on on fares that consumers pay. So I've been very clear that the transition to net zero is going to come at a price and it's a price that consumers ultimately will will pay through uh, increased uh, airfares. And there's just no way of avoiding that. Uh, so we have to recognize that uh, um, you know, achieving net zero is is absolutely critical, uh, not just from an airline industry point of view, but I think uh, from uh, every industry. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, it is going to uh, cost money and that's going to drive a significant increase in the, the cost base for airlines. Will it also require governments to dip into their pockets as well in terms of supporting research and uh, production, let's say, to make sure that there's enough uh, sustainable aviation fuel on the market in the years ahead? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair comment, uh, Kieran. We're not asking for any special treatment. We're asking to be treated in the same way as we've seen, you know, the uh, switch to green energy and the switch to, uh, you know, electric car transport uh, all came with uh, significant support from uh, governments through incentives, uh, you know, through uh, regulatory regimes uh, that uh, incentivize the production of uh, these uh, 
uh, cars or, uh, you know, the, the switch to wind uh, uh, or solar energy. So, uh, you know, we believe the same um, needs to be done for the uh, airline industry. We are an industry that uh, doesn't have an easy option when it comes to uh, decarbonizing, certainly in the time frame out to 2050. Uh, and we believe the, the the right thing to do is for uh, you know, governments to provide the uh, the proper framework and incentives to promote the production of sustainable aviation fuel. And actually, it represents a great opportunity, including uh, for countries like Ireland, uh, because you know, as a country, we import our, our oil. Uh, you know, you can produce sustainable aviation fuel from. Uh, several different feedstocks. Uh, so this is an opportunity to develop a new industry, create new jobs, uh, all of which will improve uh, the environmental performance and reduce our dependence on importing energy. So I think this is a real win-win for governments. And more and more governments around the world are recognizing that. And we're seeing great interest from uh, many governments. Uh, you know, the US is probably leading the way where they recognize that this is a huge opportunity for them and they're providing federal uh, support and state support for the production of sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, we're seeing similar moves in places like Singapore, uh, UK doing a little bit. Europe tends to adopt a, a different approach. Europe, um, and I, I say the EU here more than uh, you know, Europe in general, believes that uh, you know the way to move things is through taxation. I fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, you know, I, I think incentives work uh, much better. The carrot will work much better than the stick when it comes to the transition to uh, a net zero uh, environment and net zero economy. And as I said, we've seen that in other industries, and I believe the same will apply to the airline industry. Does reaching net zero for aviation mean fewer people traveling less than they currently travel? Or can you reach net zero while the numbers flying globally uh, continue to rise? Yeah, this is a real challenge, and I think again misunderstood. So, if if uh, you know, go back to what I said earlier, we're seeing seat factors at eighty eight to eighty nine percent. And when you look at uh, an airplane, and Mary commented on this earlier, uh, you know, you have people who will have bought tickets to to fly eleven months in advance, and you'll have people who will have bought ticket the day before. So not everybody is paying the same price. Yeah, you know, there are those who think the way to do this is to push airfares up. Uh, so that fewer people will fly. What that will lead to is the environment we saw during the 70s, where we're flying around with uh, airplanes with 70% seat factor. So I don't believe it's going to reduce the number of flights or the number of aircraft in the air. It will reduce the number of people sitting on those aircraft in the air. So the environmental impact, in my opinion, will be negligible, uh, maybe even negative. Uh, but what it does is it starts to you know, price aviation uh, away from, um, you know, most people, those who can't afford it. I think that would be disgraceful. I think, uh, you know, when you look at a, uh, you know, a country like Ireland, uh, uh, the um, the advance of Ryanair, and let's give credit to Michael O'Leary, has enabled people in Ireland to travel in a way that they never would have been able to do, you know, had uh, Ryanair not developed the, the way it did. So access to uh, cheaper airfares uh, has been, uh, I think, hugely important for Ireland and for Europe. And I would hate to see the day, uh, you know, as it was when you know, I started my career back in 1979, when uh, only, uh, you know, a small number of people could afford to fly. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think we need to be careful. Uh, you know, you look at this debate in France, for example, where they're talking about banning short-haul flights. Uh, in, in effect, they haven't, but let's assume that, that they were right, because... Uh, what if you stopped all short haul flying around Europe? Uh, you know, so every flight of less than 500 kilometers, which is typically what they say uh, should be uh, used for rail transport. If you did everything in Europe, including flights from, from Ireland of less than 500 kilometers, you would reduce the industry CO2 in Europe by 3.8%. Uh, you know, so it would not have the huge impact that some people believe. And I think this is where the data becomes very important. You know, we've been arguing as an industry that, uh, you know, a better way to get a, a quick and early win is to reform air traffic control, uh, which uh, we've been debating in Europe for over 50 years. And if we implemented that, which would come at zero cost, and the technology exists today, you could reduce CO2 by 10 to 12%. Uh, so, 
uh, you know, two to three X what stopping a um, short haul flying would do. So I, I think it's very important that people understand the uh, the data and base their decisions on, uh, you know, the facts rather than on something that appears to be popular. Will you just explain to us how the air, quickly, if you don't mind, how the air traffic control system uh, might be used in a way to reduce the CO2 emissions by the level you suggest? Well, anybody who flies between, say, Dublin and London will be familiar with the uh, the way the aircraft flies. It takes off, goes across the Irish Sea, flies across the north coast of Wales to Liverpool, turns right, goes over Manchester and then starts descending. You know, that that isn't the route between Dublin and London. If you were to take a direct line between Dublin and uh, London, as you can and uh, certainly used to be able to do at uh, weekends after five o'clock, uh, you know, it's a much shorter journey and a much faster journey. So the uh, the airways that we're flying today were developed back in the in the 40s uh, when we were heavily dependent or totally dependent on land-based navigation aids. We don't need that today. So, you know, aircraft can fly from point A to point B, uh, independent of uh, ground-based navigation systems. Uh, and we've been able to do that for many, many years. And in fact, the evidence of how uh, you know big a difference this could make was clear to us during the period of the pandemic when fewer aircraft were in the air and uh, aircraft were more able to fly directly from their uh, point of origin to point of destination. So you know we need to drop uh, you know the, um, the a lot of the historical routing that's uh, been there for uh, reasons that are no longer valid today. And the reason we're not doing this is is typically political because uh, countries still want to have sovereignty over their their airspace and are reluctant to to make changes that would facilitate uh, these direct or or more direct uh, routings, particularly across Europe. Uh, so uh, you know, I think there's a lot that governments could do uh, to improve the environmental uh, impact and. You know, you go back to these French air traffic control strikes. I'm sure you've heard Michael O'Leary talk about this uh, on a regular basis. Um, you know, what we would like to see is if the French want to shut down France, fine. But don't shut down the airspace over France and, uh, you know, facilitate people who uh, want to travel from Ireland to Spain. Uh, let them fly over France without having to bypass and reroute around France. And that's had a huge, uh, um, you know, impact on uh, the industry during the uh, the last few years, and particularly this year, with the uh, frequency of air traffic control strikes in France. Mary, what impact is sustainability and reaching net zero having on your business? Yeah, well, look. Um, first of all, that was great just to really, um, you know, I, I think uh, this is really important to all customers, and I think they know they're going to have to pay more for it. Uh, and uh, you know, just talking about. Um, the one thing about Ryanair, they're flying all new aircraft. Um, they're looking at doing 185 million passengers in 2023 and growing that by 2025 to 225 million and by 2020, 2030 to 300 million. So there's going to be growth. But um, I, you know, personally, it, customers aren't bringing it up. Uh, I have not heard individuals bringing it up, but I do think it's important to everyone. And while they're not bringing it up, I think it's something, you know, when we see what's happening in Greece, that we 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 will have to pay more for it. We will have to get right. Um, uh, you can see there's a lot of hotels. The cruise industry have done a huge amount. I mean, all their ships, everything is is about um, sustainability. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, recently Copenhagen has now said they're going to stop taking cruise ships uh, going into that port, even though it's only probably 1% of their tourists that's coming in by cruise ships. So they've got to get it right. The airline business have to get it right. I think everybody has to look individually as well. So we're going to have to pay more. And uh, I, I think it's really, really important. We're on an island. We have to get off the island if we want to travel. Tourism is really important to Ireland. The government really need to help as well, airlines. Um, and so I think we have to work together on this. And um, yeah, I think Greece is very sad to see what's happening there. And, and that is down to climate change. Willie, again, I don't know how clued in you are to what's going on at Dublin Airport, but last year we saw some long queues 
Um, there was huge demand for travel. Uh, once the restrictions were lifted, there were long queues at Dublin Airport. A lot of people missed flights and there was a lot of fallout from that. This year, uh, we're seeing issues around uh, car parking. Uh, there isn't enough car parking for, for people uh, wanting to travel. Again, great demand. Um, and the expectation is that as many people will fly out of Dublin Airport or in and out of Dublin Airport this year, as they did in 2019, just shy of uh, 33 million people. So it's kind of reaching capacity almost with the two terminals that it has. Not far away, anyway. It'll be there in a few years if uh, the demand continues on this trajectory. So uh, what to do with something like Dublin Airport? Should we be expanding it, which a lot of environmentalists uh, say we, we shouldn't be? Should we be looking to expand other airports on the island or should we simply be looking to control the numbers who are coming in and, and going out? Well, yeah, I've flown through Dublin quite a bit. Uh, I was there, as I said, uh, last weekend. The airport was busy. Um, I think there's still scope for expansion at the existing airport. Uh, you know, there's always a difference between what an airline wants and what an airport wants to do. Uh, I, I think Dublin Airport is relatively efficient. And to give them credit, you know, they did address the challenges that they they faced last year, which, uh, you know, did represent a very poor performance. Uh, so uh, certainly a lot better this year. Um, in, in my experience, yes, there's queues. Uh, but, you know, we've had queues before. And uh, I think what we've got to do is be very careful because what we don't want from an airline point of view is to see expensive development of infrastructure that isn't properly used. Uh, and again, you know, Michael will have uh, talked about this a lot. He's very critical about the way uh, T2 was developed. And, and I think he's right. You know, I think it uh, could have been developed in a much more efficient way. Uh, and, uh, you know, what we've got to do is ensure that any investment we make is credible for the long term. So I would be slow and reluctant to say that we need to expand Dublin Airport. I think there's still a lot of scope within the existing infrastructure uh, at the airport that can make it better. And what we witness, and I think everybody's familiar with this, is that you know airports are typically built in a just-in-time fashion. So they're not really designed for people to come there five, six hours in advance, which is what we were seeing. Uh, and you know people are tending to go to the airport a lot earlier than they need to, which means that the departure areas, uh, once you go airside, are much busier than they used to be because people are hanging around a lot more. Now, for the airport, that's probably good news because they typically spend a lot of money when they're sitting there. You know, the holiday starts once you get to the airport or maybe even on the way to the airport. And, uh, you know, what I witnessed at the, the weekend in Dublin were use of people buying anything and everything they could get their hands on. So, uh, you know, I think there is a balance to be struck here, Kieran, and we need to be careful. Nobody wants to see uh, inefficient infrastructure being developed or expensive infrastructure being developed. Uh, so, you know, let's utilize more efficiently the infrastructure we have first and then have a debate uh, when, you know, it is clear that uh, it's not going to be sufficient for the long term. But I think we've still got a long way to go to an airport before we get there. It would be wonderful to get a train there. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, which has been debated for years, you know, have, having rail access to the airport like you have. Like, I, you know, I live and, and work in Geneva. Uh, I live in the city. My office is at the airport. Uh, there's a direct train service. Uh, uh, I don't use a car. Uh, you know, I take the train in and out to work every day. Uh, and, you know, the, the trains are full of people coming to the airport because it's it's an efficient uh, service and, and you provide the service like that, people will use it. Mary, I was going to say, you, you obviously use Dublin Airport a lot and your customers use Dublin Airport a lot. What's your view on how it should develop over the next, say, five, 10 years? Yeah, well, look, and I actually, I love Dublin Airport. It's the only place I do my own shopping. Um, I have noticed personally, though, um, parking has gone up about a third um, because it's something I watch very carefully. Taxis have gone up hugely as well. So even if you order a taxi, um, you know, you're going to pay, I live um, about 30k from the airport. It's about 20 euros more. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think they run a very efficient airport. Um, I do think it's very good. Uh, so for me, I think you know it, it should look at a metro system. I, I think that's something whether you know it's a plan in the future, um, um, because we're just stuck on a couple of services: parking, uh, taxis, and um, air coach. So you know, I, I think. Um, get to the airport your two to three hours and uh and book your parking uh in a 
in a good uh, time frame because if you leave it last minute again, you're going to pay a huge amount of money. So um, I can't see a solution for it. I don't know the ins and outs of uh, what land they have, but um, I'd love to see in the future as a plan for um, a metro into the airport. Well, you just going back to net zero. Um, do the airlines have to do more in terms of being transparent about how they're moving towards their own uh, individual targets for net zero by 2050? I think most airlines are transparent, uh, Kieran. Like uh, I, I speak from the experience I had at British Airways Aer Lingus. You know, we published on an annual basis what our uh, CO2 um, you know, production was. Uh, we've published the targets that we had set for ourselves. Uh, I, I think uh, as an industry, uh, yeah, I think there is more that we can collectively do to make sure people understand the issue. Because as I said, I think there's a huge misunderstanding as to the contribution that aviation makes to climate change. Uh, we did some research in the US a while ago and, and nobody was able to uh, accurately te- uh, guess even uh, what percentage of CO2 is uh, from the airline industry. Some people thought it was as high as 40%. You know, so it's two percent. Uh, it's similar, actually, slightly less than uh, shipping. Um, but we, you know, we're in the spotlight, and we recognise that. Uh, we tend to be in the spotlight, as I said, because there is a lot of debate around the non-CO two impact as well, which needs to be better understood. But uh, you know, the industry is committed to net zero. It's going to be tough. It is going to be very tough uh, for an industry that isn't making. Uh, you know, money to cover its cost of capital to commit to the transition to net zero was was a big commitment to make. Uh, so we know we have uh, work to do, but we're absolutely committed to doing it. And Willie, I know it's not part of your remit uh, as such, but uh, private jets uh, account for a lot of the CO2 emissions across aviation, don't they? I mean, uh, should private jet travel perhaps be banned or curtailed? No, I don't think we should be looking at that. Like, you know, a private jet can use sustainable aviation fuel as well. Um, so we have seen an increase in the use of uh, private executive jet during the uh, period of the pandemic for, uh, I think, understandable reasons. Uh, in terms of the overall contribution, it's small. I think the issue is when you look at it on a per passenger basis, it's clearly uh, very high. Um but, you know, a lot of industries uh, require and, and indeed wouldn't be able to operate without the ability to uh, move quickly. And not every uh, industry is uh, able to get a direct service from the airport they're located close to, to the airport they want to do business in. So, you know, Mary was right earlier when she said, you know, in Ireland, we're, we're very fortunate. We've got a lot of uh, direct services, uh, but there are a lot of parts of the world where Ireland isn't directly connected. And uh, we, we, we've got to recognise as well the importance of foreign direct investment in, in Ireland. And, uh, you know, that, that comes at us at a price as well, I suppose. So I, I wouldn't be uh, in favour of banning uh, private jets. Again, I think this is where the data is important. And, you know, I, I know from uh, my interactions with them, we don't represent private jet operation, but I know from my interactions with the uh, groups that do, that they're as committed to achieving uh, net zero as, uh, you know, the uh, commercial aviation industry is. And what about, Mary mentioned earlier how, you know, you might get a better fare, especially if you're travelling as a family by going through London or some other hub um, to the United States rather than travelling directly where Aer Lingus has a big chunk of the market and, and might, uh, you know, uh, might be controlling airfares, uh, essentially. That doesn't sound very sustainable. Well, you know, I'm not here to defend my former employer Lingus, but, uh, you know, Mary used the, the word monopoly. I always cringe when I hear that because uh, anybody can fly between um, uh, Dublin and uh, Orlando. You know, there's no restrictions on who can operate there. Aer Lingus just happens to be the only one who's providing that service and they should be congratulated for it because otherwise people would be forced to take a, a different route. And while there can be times when taking an indirect route is uh, um, you know, you can get a, a lower fare. It does come at uh, some inconvenience, but you know, that's the beauty about our industry. It's 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 very competitive. You know, I used to describe it as brutally competitive, particularly when I was at Erlingus competing with Michael O'Leary. You know, if you if you want to know about competition, just try and compete against uh, uh, you know O'Leary and Ryan there, who are, are masters at it. 
So it, it's uh, an industry that uh, gives consumers a lot of choice. Um, we are fortunate in Ireland now to have a lot more choice than we used to have. And I think you've got to give credit to both Aer Lingus and Ryanair in particular, who between them opt for significant services uh, you know, across Europe and uh, across the world. That when I go back to you know the time I took over at Aer Lingus, uh, you know, back in 2001, uh, the, the network uh, offered by Erlingus was tiny relative to what it's offering today. Uh, you know, you could fly to New York and, and Boston uh, back then. You look at it now, I think Erlingus serves, what, 12, 13, 14 destinations in North America. So, you know, the industry has developed uh, quite a lot, a lot more competition today than there used to be. And I'm sure there will be a lot more competition uh, going forward. But uh, the advantage for consumers today, um, you know, is the fact that they have, uh, you know, they can shop around and they can go on the uh, uh, the web and, you know, they can check prices and compare prices and then go to their friendly travel agents and tour operator and they can sit down and talk to them. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of competition out there, a lot of options for consumers and uh uh, you know, I, I, I'm here to represent the airlines. I think they do a great job and I think they provide uh, critical services. You know, we talk a lot about uh, tourism and the importance of that to Ireland. But let's not forget, you know, having direct business links, very important for the economy of Ireland. And having those direct air services to facilitate those business links is, is critical as well. I don't think you'd see as much U.S. foreign direct uh, investment in Ireland if, uh, you know, Ireland was not as accessible by air as it is. And uh, we shouldn't underestimate how important air travel is uh, for uh, our economies. Uh, so tourism, very important to Ireland, uh, but also, you know, uh, foreign investment in Ireland, absolutely critical as well. Willie, you started your career as a pilot. Do you still have a license to fly? No, I don't. Uh, I, unfortunately, I, I didn't have time to keep that going. So uh, the, the, the last aircraft I flew actually was uh, Airbus. Let me fly a, an Airbus A350, one of their test aircraft when I was down in Toulouse. I, I don't know if they thought I had a license. They didn't ask me and I didn't tell them, but they, they let me fly it around, but with a couple of qualified uh, pilots in the cockpit as well. So no, I don't get any time to do it now, Karen. Okay, last word to you, Willie. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and predict what the uh, state of the global aviation business will be in a year's time. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, um, in good shape. Um, I'm hoping that uh, we continue to recover the uh, parts of the international market that is not yet fully recovered. I expect demand to, to remain strong. Uh, you know, people like to travel, people like to experience uh, uh, different cultures, different environments. And, you know, particularly as, as Irish people, we're well used to uh, travelling around the world. And I think uh, the industry will be in good shape this time next year. Willie Walsh and Mary McKenna, thank you for joining us. Thank you. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Willie Walsh and Mary McKenna for joining me on the show. My thanks also to EY, our sponsor, for its continued support. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. And remember, as a subscriber, you can sign up to our business today email at irishtimes.com to receive an update each morning on the latest business stories. You can also follow our own business coverage each day on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. That's it from me for this week. Until next time, take care.